I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Dr. Samantha Boardman is a positive psychiatrist, the author of the book Everyday Vitality, as well as a newsletter called The Dose. On this episode, we focus on how mindset affects personal and professional outcomes, and Dr. Boardman teaches us to find activities that are wellsprings of vitality in order to boost our confidence and uplift our spirits. Thank you, Dr. Samantha Boardman. This is so exciting to have you join us today. We are talking about quite possibly like the thing that means the most to me and to the women in our network, which is women's mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And thank you for joining us. So to start, Dr. Smith Boardman is a positive psychiatrist, which is I, we're going to get into that, but you're also the author of a book called Everyday Vitality, and um, how you have a weekly newsletter called The Dose, and you are a busy working mother. So balancing all those things is something we can dive right into because this is a really busy time of year for any working parent, and I just assume for everybody out there, this is a time where you feel a little bit frazzled. And how are you keeping it all together? And what is your best advice for those who are out there like me sort of running around? (laughs) You know, it's such a crazy time. And I think what the results, you know, it's, but it's always a crazy time. You know, like it's, I think always our heads are spinning. And I think as women, we're just putting out fires constantly. Life is a game of guacamole. We're working, we're dealing with kids, we're dealing with partners, we're dealing, you know, with our own parents, like so many different balls are in the air. And as a result, I think sometimes we sort of have this idea of, well, as soon as everything calms down, you know, as soon as, you know, I can take a breath of fresh air, then I'm going to start doing that stuff that's kind of meaningful to me or that I would like to do more of and engage more in this type of whatever behavior that is. And that we're sort of just moving the goalposts constantly then, especially on on what feels meaningful to us. And so just for that specifically, I would say whatever like the craziness and the head spinning that is happening, just do make sure that there is some prioritizing of something that is meaningful to you that you're doing each and every single day. That is, I call it like delight hunting because we're so good at fixating and on what's negative and our brains are are attuned to that. It's like a hangover of evolution. It was really good to be hypervigilant about everything that can, did, or will go wrong in our lives. And as a result, you know, it's why that, you know, your manager talks to you and like gives you a bunch of compliments and then says, you know, there's this one thing I wish you had done differently. And that's what stays with us. Like that's what we carry. And just hanging on to any criticism rather than actually even hearing the compliment that just kind of goes right over our heads. But actually it's a kind of priming ourselves and asking ourselves to focus on actually something that's good, like something that's delightful, something that's meaningful. And even sharing that with somebody else is really important because once you share something that you've enjoyed, it actually imprints differently than when you just keep it to yourself. I love that. In your book, Everyday Vitality, you talk about, you say there's three wellsprings of vitality. And these are things that like boost your confidence, give you energy and make you feel alive. And they 
are, I would assume, outside of the everyday responsibilities of work or family or whatever responsibilities you have. Yeah, no, I mean, because I think there's so much pressure right now to be happy all the time or even kind of stress-free. And sometimes the wellness industry capitalizes on that and is telling us, like, if you buy this, you're going to be really happy. Or if you take three you know, years off of your life, and obviously that's not a realistic option for anybody, this idea that you can either tune out or download or just buy stuff that's going to somehow ease your stress um, in some way. But you know, what I was really interested in, and there was not a lot of literature that I had even studied when I was in medical school around this, but there was a lot of information, a lot of data in psychology, not psychiatry textbooks, though, looking in, in, in um, journals, looking at actually not just kind of what diminishes people's stress levels, but actually what makes them feel strong. How do you dial that up? What are the buffer zones? What are these protective factors that can kind of buffer and boost one? And even in the face of a lot of stress. And so that is kind of to go back to what these three C's are, I call them, it's in your connections, like actually feeling like you're having meaningful connections. A lot of people are very busy all the time and interacting with many people, but it doesn't mean that they feel meaningly, meaningfully connected to others. You could be a room of a thousand people, but feel incredibly alone and very lonely as well. So what makes people feel connected? It's having those meaningful conversations. It's pausing, it's listening, it's feeling heard, it's being responded to, it's responding to somebody, so just somebody else and having those connected feelings rather than just kind of those ships in the night feelings. I had a patient who would just say like, I just asked my husband how he was doing five times. And I realized I just hadn't even listened, you know, to his response. But even with our kids, it's actually those kind of pause moments of when we're maybe driving in a car with them or walking side by side with them, having those deeper connections and not just talking about the weather or what are you doing tomorrow or what the schedule is. And then the second C is feeling positively challenged in some way, in some domain of your everyday life, feeling that you are, you know, in a place, a space of flow where you're using your strengths to their full advantage. Um, it might be in some hobby you have, it might be in something, it might be in something athletic that you do, just somewhere where you feel positively challenged. And that's really a competence booster. And then the third thing is how we feel like we're contributing to something. That's the third C, like how we're adding value. And one of the best antidotes we have for stress is actually doing something for somebody else, but not in a way that feels like drudgery, in a way like it's not like, oh, I've got to like do the laundry, but in the way that feels like something that actually feels meaningful to you. And we often think, I mean, there's a lot of studies looking at this about, you know, even if we, you know, if you, somebody gives you $5, if you spend it on yourself or somebody else, we often get it wrong. We think, oh, if I spend that money on myself, I'm going to feel a little bit calmer or better. But it's actually when we do do something for somebody else that gives us that boost. And also it's, which is kind of interesting. And one of our biggest stressors is time. I think every woman I know just wants like 10 hours more each day to help you know, there's just never enough time to do anything. And there's this idea of time famine that we're all, you know, just begging for more minutes each day. And um, how do we create time affluence? And one of those things is is doing something for somebody else. And how do we actually even deal with time? But, um, oh, I can't remember her name, but she wrote a wonderful book on time management. Famine versus time affluence. I've never heard of this. I love that. It's cool. And she's also talking about this idea of time confetti, because I think our time is so splintered all the time now. It's like somebody's like thrown all this different stuff 
at us. And even suddenly, like you have a meeting canceled and you're like, yes, suddenly you've got like 25 minutes to do something else. But often how we spend that time is like, oh, let's like go through Instagram or what's happening on Twitter or what's going on in the world. And actually with those time confetti pizzas, really being deliberate about how you spend it. Because that can also, like if you can grab those little chunks of time and spend them more meaningfully, doing things that align with your values. And like one of the things I ask patients to do when I first meet them is just, you know, tell me the three things you kind of value most in your life. What are those? And it can take a while to think about it. It can take a couple of sessions to even come up with what those are, but it's something we don't, because we are, we are living with this time famine that we don't even take those moments to breathe and reflect upon. It's like, actually, what do I value? What do I stand for? What do I care deeply about? And then asking, you know, okay, how do you spend your time? What did you do on Saturday, for example? Like, how did you spend that time? And then often there is a gap between what people care about most deeply and how they're spending their time or even their free time. And what we work to do is to create more overlap between the two and that you feel like you're embodying your values because that, no matter how stressed and how how many demands there are on your time, when you create more overlap between what you care deeply about and what you value, and then actually what you do when you feel like you're walking your walk, even when you are frustrated, you are disappointed, it doesn't take the toll that it does. Because as we know, stress, it doesn't occur in a vacuum, it's perceived stress. And if you feel like you don't have the resources or that kind of buffer zone or that that protective armor around you, it's going to be hitting you like dart. It's going to hurt a lot more than when you feel like you're embodying you care about in your everyday life, even when it is stressful. I love that idea because you know when you are having a day or even a few hours where you feel like you're like killing it, where you feel like you're doing all the things that align with your authentic self and you're you're doing well at work and you feel like you're being a great mom and you're like on top of the world, right? There's such a good feeling of confidence and value and you just feel like you're doing a great job. And I think especially for women when we feel stressed out and when we feel like we're not managing the time and we're not doing all of the things that we want to be aligned with, it immediately plummets what you think about yourself, what you think about yourself as a mother, as a worker, as a partner, a friend. It's like, instead of giving yourself the grace of saying, okay, I can get back into this place of realignment, it just takes a huge dive. And I find I hear from women a lot that, especially in this period of time where things feel incredibly overwhelming and there's you know a huge amount of anxiety and people feel like they're really you know, burnt out, that we are living in the part where you are low, like your low mm-hmm. self-worth, your low value, you're feeling really bad about yourself. And how do we get people back up to that place where you feel good or give them the tools to be able to do that on their own. So you're you're not like whiplashed by forces that are out of your control. Totally. And like what we call it is like closing that intention action gap, you know, because when there is that gulf in between, like what you kind of want to be doing, but actually then what you are doing. And um, there's a really interesting woman who's at NYU, who's been researching this for most of her career. And she, she's German and she works at NYU and and she talks about creating whoop goals and it's W O O P. And the W stands for like, what is your wish? Like, what would you like to be doing? And maybe it's, you know, I'd like to be spending more quality time with my family. And then the first O is what would the outcome of that be? Like, 
you know, just really kind of try to absorb what that would feel like. Like maybe I just feel more connected. I would feel less stressed. I would feel, you know, that I'm being more present with my family and just kind of to feel what that would feel like. And then the second O of whoop is, okay, what's the obstacle, you know, that's getting in the way of this? And it's like, well, maybe my phone is in my head every time we're together and I'm kind of half there, or even when we're eating dinner together. And then the P stands for what's your plan? What are you going to do? And kind of be as specific as possible. It might be like, okay, when I pick my kid up from school, I'm going to, my phone is going to be in my pocket or whatever. I'm going to turn it off. Or when I'm with my partner, it's going to be this way. Or if I get a break um, in the middle of the day and I have a meeting canceled, I'm going to go for a walk around the block and you know leave my phone in my office or whatever that that is. So really kind of being as concrete as possible and as action-oriented as possible. Because I think the world we live in, we've kind of created this idea that like happiness is all in your head. And it's also all up to you as an individual. Like it's all on you. And if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. you know? And actually just kind of taking some of that stress off of the individual. And also this idea that it's all what's going on in your mind. And actually it is in what's known as like our behavior activation. What we do really affects how we feel. It's not just the other way around. And I think traditional psychiatry has been really kind of looking at people through that idea of your emotions and your feelings affect what your, your behavior. But actually we also know it goes the other way. Your behavior can also really affect how you feel. And just those little things, if you're having a stressful day and you're sitting at your desk, like you might just kind of be like, I'm just going to double down and just plow through this and do that. But physically moving, standing up, you know, getting some fresh air, going outside. And instead of, you know, taking those breaks that are going to give you CPR, because I think taking a, a phone break is not going to give you kind of that same um, like, re- like you're not going to feel as, as vital. It's kind of a vampire vitality. And if you would, if maybe you went for a walk, you called your friend, you know, your best friend who lives in California and you, you know, left the context that you're in, you spend 20 minutes doing that. And then you come back to it. You will feel measurably better. Same thing, just physically moving. We know you don't have to like put your jog bra on and sneakers and hit the gym, just going for that, like even, you know, a, a casual walk, like what they call incidental ambulation, really changes people's moods. Um, but it's going to be, you're going to have like a more powerful impact if your phone's not in your hand and you're not kind of like, you know, going through it as you're walking. I'm really deeply interested in like the little things that we can all do to just basically have a better day and to feel less harried and less hassled. And, you know, when we were speaking before in preparation for this, I talked about how, you know, if I'd had a magic wand to wipe away kind of the guilt that working women often feel that they're kind of doing things halfway. And that they're, they're never enough in any domain. You know, th- there's so much reassuring research out there that shows that, you know, the kids of working moms are actually thriving. They are much more open-minded about gender roles, that they are doing great. So I think all that guilt we often feel that maybe we're not, you know, baking the, the cookies for the bake sale, that actually it's okay. And the kids are going to be just fine, you know, that watching us even struggle. And there's a lot of really interesting research out there too, that shows when kids see their parents really work hard for something, even kids as young as two years old, they see a parent struggling with trying to open up a, like a box. And if the parent persists and struggles, 
that there and the, then the, the child, the toddler is presented with something that's hard to like get a toy out of. They're much more likely to persist if they've seen their parent really work hard at that. And um, we're actually doing our kids a favor by not making everything about them as, as well. And I think this whole professionalization of parenting has made it more stressful on parents, but also not it's not necessarily beneficial for kids either. Jenny and I actually had a conversation, you know, in preparation for this, also kind of thinking about like, what are the tools that we could give people that might be interesting? And Jenny mentioned earlier, this whole idea of kind of being one's authentic self. And, and while that does feel good when in every way we are, you know, embodying what we care about, but at the same time, I think there can be a lot of pressure to just be this like this idea of finding one's true self. And that, that requires a lot of like burrowing in and self-reflection. And then like sort of immersing oneself in one's emotions. And that can really lead to rumination. And as women that we can kind of, that fixation, it's almost like that ticker tape going through our minds of like, imagine watching like the crawl on CNN, like, why do you do this? Oh, this is coming up. This is going to go badly. And what are those things? What are those tools we can use that actually can interrupt rumination? One is actually just being in nature. So if you do live near park at all just to go outside it actually literally quiets rumination in the brain it's incredible and you know i think there's a lot of evidence that we have nature deficit disorder and how calming nature is and how it really does buffer and bolster and boost our mental health and it, it can be just you know 10 minutes even just getting a plant and putting it on your desk can help we even know people who are recovering from surgery that they require less pain medication and they recover more quickly when they even can look at a tree. So just to keep that in mind, but also to interrupt rumination, going back to this idea of being authentic is to be what we, we called like a well-intentioned phony. And that's not being fake or being like what my stepson would call like a narc, not a real person, but actually sometimes thinking about role models and people who we admire, um, who are exemplars for us and thinking, hey, what would Jenny do in this moment? You know, like how would she handle that? And that that can help us, you know, when, especially when we're feeling really stressed and immersed in whatever's going on in our world and it all feels like it's coming in on us is imagining, okay, and it's almost like a snow globe and somebody's shaking it up. But what helps us kind of gain perspective is thinking of somebody you admire, you know, if it's, um, you know, I, I had a patient who would think about Michelle Obama, like, what would she do right now? And that that can actually kind of lift us out of ourselves and help like us sort of gain perspective. Another really, um, there's a lot of data behind this, this technique, it's called self-distancing and it kind of helps distance you from the, those consuming hot emotions is thinking about like, what would your future self say to you right now? So you're sort of time traveling. Another thing you could do is think like, what would I say to a friend right now? What kind of advice would I give them? And immediately there's a different kind of clarity um, that we have. And, you know, this is called King Solomon's paradox. Apparently King Solomon was wildly smart and, and wise um, and giving advice to others. But when it came to himself, his like sort of private life, he was a train wreck. And what is it? Why are we able to have perspective around others, but not with ourselves. We all need a little bit of um, some cognitive wobble to kind of remind us of to how to deploy our skills of resilience. I really like what you touched on before about happiness and mm -hmm. how there seems to be what I think of as like a happiness industrial complex right now mm -hmm. where totally. 
people feel almost like pressure because there's so much out there and like the wellness and, you know, mindfulness. And all of a sudden, if you're not, it, it feels like if you're not able to have happiness at work and have happiness in life and keep yourself at this like very high level of like optimized joy and feeling balanced in your own body, you're doing something wrong or you're somehow failing. And I hear about it, like I did something yesterday on TikTok about this because even companies are like investing heavily in wellness and how their employees are, are going to be so happy coming back to work. <laughs> it seems irrational and also not really logical to think that everyone's going to be happy all the time at work if we just sit around you know, with snacks and programming and you're going to be happy at home. And we're living in a time that's so scary and uncertain. How do you balance feeling this pressure to be on and be happy all the time and be positive when you don't actually feel that way? Yeah, I think like we there is this intolerance of anything that isn't smiley face and rainbows and unicorns. You know, this idea that everything's got to be sort of smooth sailing and I think it was a professor at Stanford who had called it duck syndrome, this idea that we keep seeing other people who look like they're sort of skating smoothly across this flat pond, but at the same time, we're not seeing that they're like, you know, legs are moving like wildly and madly beneath them. And thinking that everyone else has got this sort of smooth sailing kind of duck, you know, serenity going on, and that actually we're not really seeing what's happening beneath the surface and how people are struggling. I don't know, this is probably not reassuring, but there's a lot of research out there that we do seem to assume other people are much happier than we are, you know, because we only see sort of people's highlight roles, especially with social media. Nobody, even when they're sort of just woke up like this kind of thing, it's usually so airbrushed in every way. And this idea of this kind of fake perfection that is presented to us. And we're seeing that young women, perfectionism is really on the rise. Just this idea that not only do they have to look perfect and have so perfect social lives, obviously they want to feel perfect professionally. Also an intolerance of imperfection in others, wanting others to be perfect all the time. And it is, I think, incredibly generous when we see our role models, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit and share, you know, actually, this is really, really hard. This was so tough for me doing this, or I am struggling and I am really stressed out. When I was writing my book, it was really, really hard for me. It took me a long time to get it done. And I had so many people I admired who had just fired these books out and, you know, cake and leave and six months, they like had these bestsellers. And I was really like sort of in the depths of like, oh my gosh, where am I going with this? And Angela Duckworth, who had written Grit, that was a wildly like, you know, terrific like runaway bestseller. And I just assumed Angela had just kind of plopped down one weekend and fired out Grit and then like went back to research and teaching. And one day she sent me this email, the attachment to her original proposal for her book. And she, I, and she was like, Sam, I cried every day for two years. And like, you've got to see, this is my bare bones proposal. And it kind of sucks, huh? And honestly, it was the most generous thing she'd ever done. Because there was like a couple of bullet points. Like, I'm going to write this thing about grid. It's kind of this idea of like, you know, when you work hard in the face of negative feedback. And it was a skeleton of an idea that was, you know, germinating. And I have to say, it was one of the most 
generous gestures, having somebody I knew do that because I had just thought like Angela, who like, you know, lives on this pedestal of brilliance, had had probably had such an easy time doing something. And actually for her to share her kind of blood, sweat and tears that had poured into this was so generous. Are there any like anyone out there if you're having a hard time, I guarantee you there are many, many people like you are so not alone in this. And for anybody who's had a hard time and maybe feels that they're on the other side of it to share that experience, you know, with somebody else. And sometimes I think we think that it's like maybe psychiatrists that have all the answers. They really don't. It's one another. It's our communities that do. And I think that those are the reservoirs. Those are the wellsprings of our vitality and these connections and having these tailwinds and that invisible support from people who've shown us that what was difficult for them, what helped them navigate that. And we have so much to learn from one another um, than I think thinking that we have to like buy something or download something or move to India and eat, pray, love our way to like joy. It's almost like the, instead of happiness, it's like truthiness. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So like, don't, you don't have to spend all your time just like focused on like, no, I'm so happy. It's great. And you can just lead with the, you know, where you are. I mean, obviously you don't even want to like word vomit all your feelings on a platter, but it's more the connection of that, which is one of the C's in your book, like the connecting with other people and having a place and a forum. It's one of the reasons why we do these webinars because we have this huge group of women and it's a way for us to be able to get together and learn from each other or learn from experts and talk about where, where we are. I think there's so much pressure on women right now. And you talk about like PTSD and happiness as part of your positive practice. And then some of the things you discuss, I wonder if you think like, are we in the PTSD world right now of COVID or are we still like in the COVID world where it's not even trying to put it together and figure it out yet? I think we were all hoping, you know, I think we're all storytellers. We wanted to be like, there was this beginning in March of 2020, and then there was this middle, and then there was an end. And we're kind of waiting for the ending. Is that the way we tell stories? And this idea that there's this long, long, long tail of whatever this kind of, this liminal, this penumbra that we're kind of inhabiting of weirdness um, of, of what's going on. But I do think if that's where it is, you know, we started with that kind of as soon as kind of mindset that we have to be really careful about, but also this notion of how are we handling negative emotions? And because we we were talking about how we're sort of intolerant of them. And I might think of myself as a positive psychiatrist, but I'm a big believer in leaning into negative emotions, feeling them. There's actually research out there showing that people who either kind of, you know, rationalize negativity, you know, you can be like, oh, I student gets a C on a test and be like, that teacher is just so mean or whatever. Or you could, you know, the rationalization of like, you know, I got a bad review from my manager. Like maybe they're just like, they just don't like me or whatever. Not dealing with those emotions that then when we're presented with another challenge, we don't necessarily learn from them. So actually leaning into those emotions, feeling them, this is data. It's a data point. It's not, it's nothing beyond that. So rather than kind of trying to sweep them under the rug that I think, you know, we don't feel like we have enough time or feeling frazzled, how can we sit with them? How can we learn from them? And then, you know, rather than just quickly trying to like, let me move on, let me move on. Let me put that smile back on my face, that fake smile back on my face and and sort of move past that. And I think it's important to feel those feelings. And even there's emotional granularity as language psychologists use around this is actually putting a label on them, like rather than that kind of blah, I don't 
feel good or like I just feel like I'm in a bad mood, being as precise as you can about what that feeling is. Like if you're kind of in a bad mood, be like, what is going on? Like, why am I feeling this way? And even whipping out a a thesaurus if you need to, to be as precise as you can about the language you're using to describe that. Because it almost helps you put like police tape around it. And it doesn't feel like this kind of blah cloud following you. And what's important about being really specific and precise with your language there is it stops you from feeling paralyzed by it. And it gives like sort of that pathway to action. Like, here's what I can do about this. And um, this is something that I can handle. And what can I, like, what is the action that I can take for this? Also, I think allowing for what, what we all have, but I think we don't consider enough is this idea of emo diversity, like that we can feel stressed out and, you know, happy at the same time. These oh, emotions that we can, yeah, the, but and that both and that, you know, people like, how are you? I'm good or I'm bad. I'm happy or I'm sad. You know, like that I'm strong or I'm weak. That these can exist side by side and looking at, um, you know, there were these studies from the late 90s looking at caregivers of HIV patients and those who were able to kind of actually find that laughter within their sadness, who were able to sort of notice something that was amusing and share it, even within this tremendous challenging time, who were able to hold those emotions side by side. And it's something that we we don't allow for enough. And I think we have almost this, this binary bias when it comes to how our, we're feeling and just assume that it's kind of black or white and that, that nuance and the shades of gray that we don't allow for and almost feel guilty about, you know, um, if we're not kind of just able to, to like, if it's not like we're good or we're bad, like everything, I think Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, we're happy thing that. all the yeah. time because that's what I'm being told I have to be. And and even in that kind of gritting our teeth, the grinning and bearing of it is really like not helping us in any way. But so how can we digest and, and metabolize that those negative emotions? How do we learn from them? How do we use them as information? And then we can move on from them, you know, or move forward with them rather than, I think we pathologized the idea of feeling bad. I mean, even I had a patient who was grieving her. She had lost a grandparent a couple of um, months before and she like felt this pressure. People were kind of like, what's wrong with you? Snap out of it, you know, like get over it. And she would have really good days, really happy days. And then something would hit her like, oh, like she'd want to call her grandmother and like kind of in that weird liminal space around grief where you're kind of reorienting yourself to thinking of someone in the present, to thinking of them in the past. And that like ah, gasp of like, oh wait, I can't. And then having, you know, that, that it would weigh heavily on her too, but that, and then this pressure on top of that to like, you know, how come you don't want to come out with us? It's going to be really fun. Like, why are you being such a Debbie Downer? You know, and, and that pressure to be happy that I, I think, you know, obviously was really making her feel even worse. Women internalize so much guilt and shame and pressure upon themselves as well. Like what the shoulds. Mm-hmm. Yes, we talk about that. That's like a toxic word. Should. It's funny. Um, Chris Peterson used to call it uh, stop shooting on yourself and stop shooting on others. And I think it's really goes hand in hand with he would also talk about having a butt free day. Like if somebody comes to you and says like, oh, isn't this great? And how I think oftentimes we do feel like we have to be the voice of reason, like be like, yes, but and, and just like just try to just bite your tongue a little bit before that butt follows everything. And because, again, it's kind of always pouring, um, you know, water on someone's fire. I am a relentlessly optimistic person and positive. And I, and so I can 
sort of flip things into a positive place, even when it seems crazy. But like, to me, I think the the silver lining or the positive side of this whole pandemic and having it go on for actually so long and not having the end that you are like, people are searching for is that because it's gone on so long, it actually is forcing people to confront a lot of things that if it had been, you know, six months, a year, two years, we would have been like, okay, well now we're done and move on. And I hear from a lot of people, it's like, it's gone on too long. You you can't actually go back to, or you, you can, but it would be unhealthy that people are being forced to confront a lot of the things that have come up that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And so it's like, oh my gosh, my anxiety is out of control. And all of a sudden you're like, I I have to deal with this, or I'm so unhappy. I have to deal with this. And then all of a sudden you're on this other path where you're looking at what are the things that made you unhappy? Why are you not going after the job that you want? Why are you so overwhelmed by, you know, life, family things? Um, How do you find the connections in the space? Because this is, um, it's like, it hits a point where it's almost like untenable anymore. You Mm -hmm. just can't do it. And you're actually forced to change your life, change your mindset, change your emotions. And so if nothing else, that's actually, I think a good thing. It's like having to confront what you were saying, those emotions that you are negative, that you don't, that you're uncomfortable with, that are unsettling. You have no choice to deal with it. For a while, you could have made a choice. You could have made lots of excuses, but there's almost no choice anymore unless you just like really want to live a miserable existence. It's it's so true. And, and there's a lot of research around that too, looking at it's only when we're forced, they call it like the force experimentation effect to kind of to do something different is that's when we'll do it. Even if we are like, you know, somebody can give you all the information in the world and it's why sometimes education isn't always the answer because it doesn't necessarily change behavior. It's only when we're forced to do something differently that then we're like, oh yeah, maybe I'll do that, you know? Do you think that that's like going to wind up being in the long run a good thing for society and humanity? <laughs> humanity? I mean, again, I do think it's a both end, you know, like I think we've all, you know, been in the same storm, but people have been in different boats, you know, like it's been, it's been so different and it's really hard to generalize. I had a patient at the beginning of the pandemic who I was really worried about and, you know, had a lot of anxiety and she'd been treated, like I'd been treating her for a long time and I was so worried and I was just kind of figuring out Zoom. It was mid-March and she, we, we get on a phone call, they can't get the Zoom thing to work and I'm so worried. And, and she, she tells me, you know, she's doing really, really well. And I was like, I'm so glad to hear that. What's going on? She's like, I've been so busy. I've got all of these people I know who've never had an anxiety before. They're having a really (laughs) hard time. And I have so much advice to give them. And this is like, you know, I've been waiting for this, frankly, all my life. And I am like in this position of of being a giver and, and knowing what to do. And I've got all this advice to deploy. And I know all these strategies and I'm really being helpful. And you know, so I, I think that like for somebody like her and she actually, it was really an, and it has been, and it's kind of remained that way, this sense of empowerment. And I, I think that this idea of many people reporting that they had a renewed appreciation for, you know, their close relationships, um, for, and there was, people were worried there'd be this, you know, there'd be many divorces and that, that hasn't happened. People saying they have, you know, renewed priorities, a renewed sense of their personal strengths or what they do and renewed like appreciation for the other people in their lives. So I think there have been, rather than this kind of, 
you know, again, binary, like it's all bad or all good. I think we can have that both and there too. And for some people, certainly like, I think maybe have even experienced growth as a result of it. But I think there's also people, many who've had, you know, serious trauma. And, you know, we know that they say that for every person who dies, nine people are grieving for them, you know, so the numbers just keep going up. And so we have a lot of people who are grieving and who, you know, are obviously really, really struggling. I mean, I, I think sometimes the impulse is, I think when people are challenged or are not feeling their strongest is to remove all challenges um, from them. And how do we actually give them the tools to navigate the challenge? It was, was what I'm, I'm optimistic about that we, we can do that. I meant to ask this at the beginning, but I forgot. How would you describe positive psychiatry? And how is it like specific or different? Sure. Like, I mean, positive psychiatry is... Well, I'll tell you how I got here and that's how I can explain it. You know, it's really, um, I, I had been out of medical school and I had done my residency and I'd been treating patients for quite a long time. And a, a woman who I'd been treating had a lot of anxiety and she was feeling overwhelmed with her family and her, she, she'd worked as a lawyer and had stopped working, but she was doing some pro bono work. And she had some anxiety, some symptoms of depression, but not fully kind of checking every box there. And we're, I'd seen her for about six weeks and she comes to my office one day and just says, you know what? I sometimes just hate coming here. All we ever do is talk about kind of what's wrong in my life. And that that's kind of the main focus. And we never talk about anything else. And she wasn't wrong. I had been so well-trained in like kind of symptom management and conflict, you know, kind of resolution and kind of how to dial down misery. That was my expertise in many levels, but not really thinking enough about kind of what made life worth living for her, what was meaningful to her, what she enjoyed doing, what elevated her. And it prompted me to go back to school and to study positive psychology, which was learning about optimism and resilience and post-traumatic growth and really the science behind them. I'd rolled my eyes before I'd come at that with a lot of skepticism of, you know, this is the rainbows and unicorns and smiley faces. And really, I'd, I recognized that my approach had been all about pathogenesis, which is the study and understanding of disease and not salutogenesis, which is the creation of health and how they can go hand in hand. You can help somebody find wellness within their illness. You can help them find strength within their stress. And so that's why I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist, because I'm not minimizing the symptoms or the challenges, but I also think that it's important to also focus on the unbaked side of that pie that I think I had not been looking enough at. Yeah, because it, it, it's like you've got to dive deep, but then you've got, you know, it's like, what's the end game? The end game is, is being positive and being happy and, you know, coming up with a strategy to, to elevate your spirits. So I, I love that. I think that I think it's a great title and I applaud you Thanks. for diving into it and, you know, putting that out into the world and your newsletter. I think it's really great. I, the information you're putting out is really interesting and, and useful because it's like, Nuggets. Thanks. You know, I mean, I think there's so many smart people. <laughs> um, it's been a lot of women. It's it's mostly women um, who, who read it. And there's lots of smart people, but you're putting out something really interesting and unique. So, own it. Well, no, thank you, though. And so, I just really wanted to be able to share this research. They say, on in general, I think it's three people read a scientific paper, and that includes your mother. So, the idea that like there's there's so much fascinating research out there. How do we share it in actionable ways that is, you know, translatable into people's everyday life that I could put out there? And that was really my goal with this newsletter is like, here's data. Look at this science. Like this has real life relevance for you. 
do what you want with it. But I really wanted to make it actionable for people and who are curious about the stuff, but don't have time to sit down and read, you know, go through a 20 page research study though, and just show like, this is what's out there. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Maybe it'll be helpful to someone you love or someone you know. Maybe it'll be helpful like, you know, in your workspace, maybe in your home life, whatever that is. And so that's really kind of the idea behind it. And gotten a, a lot of great feedback and, and really engaged followers and people comment on it. And I, I love, and you know, also people sending me stories about what's going on with them and really inspiring or saying, please write about this or that, like writing a lot about relationships, a lot about work. And really also trying to debunk some of those myths out there around, like, I think that happiness industrial complex you, you mentioned as well. Yeah, I think that's great. What's the one thing you're hearing most about work? And then I'll let you go. But what's the one thing people are asking you most about? Because are most of the people that you work with women? Yes. Yeah, I just, I didn't intend it to be that way. That's <laughs> like the somehow where I ended up. And I'm very happy, happily that way. But just people having a hard time, I think, in their the, the work going back to work, um, how much that kind of hybrid, how much they want to be in the office or not, that's like a source of stress or how much they feel like that's a lot of shoulding, like, should I be there um, in that place? A lot of also around their social lives, a lot of people feeling super overwhelmed with reentry, feeling kind of that social hangover of what it's like feeling obligated to, to kind of go out again and feel totally normal doing it. And really, I've been advising people to really cherry pick what they spend, like not to just go all in, um, but like what you really feel like doing, what's meaningful to you. Instead of going to that cocktail party for 80 people, maybe have go to that dinner with six friends where you can have a meaningful conversation because something that gets bigger than that, it's going to be hard to do that. And really being deliberate about moving forward. Like, what have you taken away from this period of time? What have you decided that you actually like more about your life? How can you integrate that into your life moving forward rather than just kind of being in like default mode and, you know, just passive and letting it all happen? I think oftentimes what really is depleting for our vitality is feeling like a tumbleweed and you're sort of everybody else's whim and everyone else's schedule and being as deliberate as you can about what is meaningful to you and putting those values front and center and really kind of job crafting your life around that. I love all of this. Um, I really, I can't thank you enough for taking your time to do this. And I love hearing different strategies that people can employ and different ways in which you can think about using this time when you're feeling maybe like a boat that's at sea and not in control, being able to like write it and being smart about it and having, you know, the thoughtfulness to prepare for a future that, although I guess what you're saying is don't actually prepare for the future. Just do it now. Do it, <laughs> do it now. now. There's never a future that's going to be better. This is the moment. This is Just the moment. Me- Figure out how to like steer the ship now and whatever waters are in the future so that you are in a place that is successful and feels really strong. I love it. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jenny. And thank you, Kiki. I really appreciate it. Really, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Love this one. See you guys next time. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.